Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Christ. We come through his merits because of his work, because of his perfection, because of who he is and what he did. We come because you, Father, sent him and you, Holy Spirit, have opened our eyes to see him. So we pray to you, our triune God, we give you thanks for this revelation. We give you thanks for our salvation, for our sanctification, and ultimately for our glorification, which will come in the future. Lord, we want to glorify you, not only in the future. We want to glorify you now. And I believe you've given us a revelation to teach us how to do that. You've given us your word so that in it we would grow to love you and know you more. And as a result of that, it would pour over onto those around us and your name would be exalted. So, Father, I do pray this morning your word and even the introduction to your word this morning, I pray that it would fuel us. I pray that it would heal us, it would direct us, and I pray ultimately that it would exalt Jesus as we hear it and as we apply it and carry it out into this world you've called us to go into. We thank you for all that are here. We ask you, Lord, to, in a special way, care for those who cannot be with us personally this morning. We pray that you would minister grace to their needs, wherever they are and whatever is going on in their life, so that they would turn their eyes to you this morning and give you thanks. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to be talking about Jesus every Sunday for the next few months. I saw a sign on Todd Friel's website that said, it was a church sign out in front of a church, it said, this Sunday, a message about Jesus. Next Sunday, same message. Get used to that. That's what we're going to be hearing over and over and over, because we are beginning a study of the gospel of Mark. God has given us good news of who he is and what he has come to do in this world, and he does that through the gospel of Mark. It's the beginning of the good news, is how Mark would even address it. The gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's a a new genre that God invented to transmit and report what Christ has done. Each one of these Gospel accounts have a a uniquely divine look into God's eternal plan of redemption. And they give it from eyewitness accounts. Each gospel begins with the greatest news of all. It begins with the coming of our Savior. Each one of them highlights this. God himself has come to deliver the good news to man personally. That is the essence of the good news. That is the essence of the gospel. But that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And this is a fulfillment of it that we see here in the Gospel of Mark. But go with me to Isaiah 9 so we can actually see that this was God's intention from the very beginning. As it goes through the Genesis account all the way through the prophet Isaiah, we see that this was the good news that was to come. God, God of very God, God the Son, would enter into this world to redeem His fallen creation. Isaiah 9 declares this. It says, In verse 6, for to us a child is born, speaking of the humanity of the one that would come. To us a son is given, speaking of the deity that he would actually express in his fulfillment of the Father's will here. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this word Everlasting Father speaks of him as being the everlasting protector or head or king or chief. Don't get him mixed up with the Father. The Son is not the Father. He is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. 
But we see here that this was testified by the prophet that there was one that would come. The one that would come would be both human and divine. 100% God, 100% man. The apostle Peter tells us in Acts, go to Acts 2 with me, that the good news itself began with God's predetermined plan formed in eternity past, according to Acts 2, 22. Peter's telling us that the good news that God has given was the predetermined plan that he had created in eternity past and came to fruition in history. Now that we see this through the Gospels, it's declared to us clearly. But here in Acts 22, or 2.22, it says, Men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite or determined plan and the foreknowledge or the prearranged appointment, the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it it was not possible for him to be held by it. The reason he could not be held by it is because he was guiltless. He was absolute perfection. Sin had no domination over him. Death had no power over him. He overcame it for us in our place because he was both truly human and truly divine. That's really what we see in the gospel account. It's a unique account. It's a unique to all religious history. It's the only time that the God someone serves comes into this world to redeem those he created. All the gospel accounts begin like that. We'll look quickly at those. Matthew 1. Matthew 1.18. 1, 1.18 through 23 states the good news very clearly that God himself would enter into his creation, enter into the world of fallen sinners to redeem those that he has chosen to die for. Look what it says in 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is the prophecy of Isaiah coming to fruition here. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. That's very specific. He will be the Savior. He will save his people people, the ones he has chosen, and he will save them completely from their sin and defilement. Verse 22 says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Luke's account. Look at Luke 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, right? Luke 1, verse 30. We see this again. And the angel said to her, this is Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor or grace, would be the other word you could interpret that as. You have found grace with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give give to him the throne of his father David. 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This one that would come through Mary would have an eternal kingdom. That would imply that he is an eternal king. And that is exactly what the Gospels are telling us. It is the God-man who comes into this world to redeem fallen people. Now go to John chapter 1. We'll see one more account that explains this. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, and then verses 14 through 18. In the beginning was the Logos, the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, that is, the Word. All things were made through the Word of God. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him, that is, the Word of God, was life. And the life was the light of men. Now, to understand what those passages are talking about, you have to go down to verse 14. And we get the explanation of this narrative, of this story. That word that was spoken of in verse 1 is this. That It says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh, and He tabernacled or dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Interestingly enough, John was born first. So what John means is he was always before me because he was the incarnate Son of God. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. The Son of God, God the Son, He has exegeted God the Father for us. He has drawn Him out so we could see Him in His ministry here on earth. That's what Jesus does. Now go with me back to Mark. We'll focus our attention a little bit on how Mark begins the message that God's given him about Jesus Christ which we call the good news. Now, I'm, I'm laboring this point for a reason. The fact that Jesus is deity is essential to our salvation. The fact that we know that He's deity because God has revealed it is very compelling, is it not? It's the revelation that God has given of the one that was prophesied about in the Old Testament, and he came into this world and into history in time, and it was God the Son that came to do what we could never do, who came to die in our place and live a life we could never live. He lived for us, and he died for us, and he rose for us, and he ascended for us, and he is coming back again for us. But if you don't know who he is, you're lost. You can't understand the rest of the Bible. If, if you deny or sever the revelation that God's given about Jesus, you have missed the good news. And I want to protect us from that. That's why we're looking at this particular gospel. It begins by telling us who Jesus is. Mark 1, 1 through 3. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, 
the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John was the one who would prepare the way, the one who would go before the Lord, Adonai, God. He would prepare the way for God. And in verse 1, it tells us who that God is, God the Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark begins with the most basic and essential news of all. He tells us who Jesus is, truly is. He is Son of God. He is co-equal, co-eternal, omnipotent, all-powerful. Now, this was important to begin his letter like this with just a really straightforward, boom, here's Jesus. He is God the Son. Because he's writing to Romans, most likely. Gentiles who believed in the power of the sword, They believed in power. They believed in authority. They could respect that and see that. So Mark addresses them with a very powerful message from the very beginning. From the very first line in Mark, he makes it clear that he wants us to know who Jesus is. Now, interestingly enough, he he focuses on this. And even in some of your notes, you'll see that some of the manuscripts actually leave out of verse 1, the Son of God. But what we need to understand is the reason that's inserted there is because that's exactly what the prophecy below is declaring. That He is the Son of God. He's giving us the prophecy of both Malachi and Isaiah saying, this is the one who was to come. And Mark's putting it down here for us to see it as in this short form in verse 1. He's the Son of God. And He comes with authority and with power like a king as these prophecies describe the way a person would cry out before a king comes into a city, the king is coming, the king is coming, make ready. That's what he says John the Baptist does. And before we actually can go much further into who Jesus is, though, we will do that in a moment, I want to talk just a little bit about who Mark was. The gospel of Mark itself gives us a few hints of what Mark was like and who Mark was. If you go ahead and turn with me to Mark 14, you see a very small glimpse of who Mark is, and I guess you could say what Mark was like, because you see in this he becomes very subdued. He he doesn't want any praise. He he doesn't want the praise of men. He's simply wanting to be recognized in the narrative as just someone who is insignificant, which implies that he was humble. He was a humble servant. He didn't make much of himself, which is always nice to see in a preacher of the Word of God. They want to let Christ increase while they decrease. If you see pastors and preachers and proclaimers of the Word of God who want to increase, you might ought to reconsider following after what they're teaching. Because all those who have followed Christ faithfully have wanted to decrease in His presence. As Mark does here, by just subduing himself and bringing himself down low here as really not important at all, but yet he's part of this narrative story. You see him referred to, He's referring to himself here in verse 51, 1451. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. It's a rather humbling text, humbling description of this man. 
He was saying that there was a point of him being there because he was a witness. He saw this. He saw what was going on. However, he wasn't the key person. Jesus was. If you go with me to Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, you can see that he's actually referred to by his Hebrew name as John Mark. So when you see Mark and you understand we talk about John Mark, we're talking about the same person in Acts 12. We see him referred to here as Mark, but also by his Hebrew name, John. Mark would have been more of a Roman name. It says, when he realized this in verse 12, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying in verse 6 through 12. He's witnessing what happened to Peter. So it just ties us a little bit closer together with his relationship with the apostle Peter, who actually took him in, put him under his wing, and taught him all that he had seen. He became actually known as the apostle Peter's son in the faith in 1 Peter 5.13. We also know he was not just acquainted with the Apostle Peter, as in this text, but he was also acquainted with the Apostle Paul, though it wasn't quite as flattering. Paul didn't call him his spiritual son. Actually, Paul separated from him because Mark, John Mark, bailed out in the midst of ministry. Look what Acts 15 says about his acquaintance with the Apostle Paul. It didn't end all that well at this point, but God in His mercy just does what he always does. He works in a gracious way to restore the weak. And later on in the Apostle Paul's life, Paul himself said, I need Mark. But here at this time, Mark wasn't ready for ministry. In Acts 15, verse 36, it says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas, okay, his name means son of encouragement. That's important. Remember that son of encouragement, wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them at Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, an argument, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord." What happened there was, was Paul saw that Mark wasn't ready. Mark had made a commitment, and then when it came time to go into ministry, Mark bailed out. And so Paul says, I can't take you with me. You're not trustworthy at this point. And so he leaves him in the hands of Barnabas, which is the right place to leave him. Because as we know through the rest of church history here, through the book of Acts and all the way to 2 Timothy 4, we know that the son of encouragement came alongside this weak brother, John Mark, and loved him and cared for him, and taught him, and discipled him, and God brought him to a place that he would actually be useful. Look with me to 2 Timothy 4 to see that. And this this is something you can take away as as an application, I think, from all this. The very man who bailed out on the Apostle Paul was not fit really for ministry at that point, was taken in by God's grace through another brother discipled, loved, and cared for, and then eventually became this man that Paul speaks about here that was needed in Paul's life. But not only that, that weak John Mark in Acts was given the great and high privilege of writing the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's amazing. So just as a point of encouragement, when you feel weak, when you feel set apart and maybe not ready, God may be preparing you to do great and wonderful things in and through His grace and the means He's given. But here in 2 Timothy 4, 9, it says, speaking in, in basically Paul's swan song, his, his last word here before he is martyred for Christ. He says, do your best, he's talking to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon for Demas, who was one of his disciples that he had trained, Demas, in love for this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Christians has gone to Galatia, Titus to Demaltia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. You know, even though John Mark had looked like he had a, a shadow cast over his life there in Acts, isn't it wonderful that his name is there? And he made it in the book. The Apostle Paul, when he came to the end of his life, he said, This man's useful. I need him to serve me. I need his service. I need his ministry. The book of Mark is useful. We need this book. We need what God did through Mark. We need that encouragement that Barnabas expressed to him by God's grace to bring us to respond to the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Mark is a fast-paced book. I think if you've read it, you know that. It's the shortest of the gospel, 16 chapters. It's very fast-paced. It's, it's, a bit, it's a bit like an action movie. It, you're going from boom, 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 from picture to picture to picture very quickly. And, and there's a tend, tendency in this book to feel like you're being rushed from one place to the other. But this all fits in with the design that God had given Mark through his Holy Spirit's inspiration to speak to those who were Roman Gentiles, who expected to see, if you're going to talk about a God, I don't want to see a weak man, I want to see a powerful man. And so God gives us this book of action here. And, and what, what I find interesting is he uses a word over and over again in this, this gospel in particular. He uses the word immediate or immediately. He uses it 41 times in this gospel. 41 times. That word's repeated. It's repeated almost in every chapter of this book. And the idea behind that is immediately you should respond to Jesus. Jesus immediately responds to all kinds of situations so that people will immediately respond to who he is. And that's part of the application for us as we study the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. We need to understand that God is calling for us to immediately respond to Jesus in obedience, in apologetics. Whatever we do, we need to respond to the truths that we learn here about who Jesus is. Let me give you some examples of the word, how the word immediate is used real quickly here. And we're going to go through these fast, just like Mark. In Mark 1, 9 through 11, we see that Jesus is immediately baptized. And even in this, we see that there's an immediate testimony from heaven, from God the Father saying, this is my Son, testifying that He is divine. Look what it says in verse 9. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to, of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now, church, understand, whatever people want to say about Jesus, whatever they want to deny about Jesus, you can't deny this. No other man in human history has had a voice come from heaven saying, This is my only and my begotten Son. 
Yet he has this testimony immediately at the beginning of his ministry that this Lamb of God, the Lamb who came to be slain, was also God the Son. Because of that, in Mark 1.12, Jesus is immediately tested to prove he is God the Son. Mark 12, it says, The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. And Jesus overcomes in the wilderness because he was divine. He actually undoes everything that was done in the garden in the wilderness. When Adam was in a perfect state and a beautiful garden, he fell. When Jesus was in a wilderness, he excelled. He overcame the tempter immediately. Then after he overcomes and testifies to who he is in his baptism and through his temptation, he immediately begins preaching the gospel of God. You see that in verse 16. I'm sorry, let let me back up to verse 14. Verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Then passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. That's that's exactly how we should respond to him. He has testified in his word to who he is and what he has came to do. And when people hear that, they are called upon by God himself to immediately repent of their sins, repent of their self-righteousness, and trust in the righteous one who overcame sin for us. That's what he's doing in this gospel. What's interesting is the word immediate... It it continues throughout this letter, this gospel, over and over again until you come to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, turn there with me, chapter 10, verse 52, all of a sudden the word shows up probably for the last time for about four or five other chapters. There's There's a pause, a divine pause, if you will, after this account. And there's a reason for this divine pause. In 1052 it says, And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. This is the last time this shows up until you come to the end of Mark, to chapter 14. There's a reason. This is the way that God the Holy Spirit has inspired Mark to cause the readers to feel rushed because Jesus is rushed to do and fulfill what He's called to do by God the Father, fulfill His ministry, and He comes to the pinnacle of that here and says, the king is about to enter the city. The king is going to enter the city. The king is going to do something for the city that they can't even imagine. Because the king has come. The king has incarnated himself. And the king will come not to reign now, but to die so that those who he dies for can reign later. Immediately fades away here so that we can focus on why Christ 
came immediately into the world. What we're doing here is we're pausing with the readers that read this for the first time. We're pausing as Jesus prepares to die. Mark 14, 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said, his disciples sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, Jesus, it says, fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. and They did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. A son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. His betrayer had arrived. He was preparing to die. And then through the preparation comes Judas and immediately we see the culmination of why Jesus entered into this world through Judas's kiss. Mark 14 drives us immediately to the high point, to the high point of the gospel itself, which is the good news about what the God-man, Jesus Christ, came into this world to accomplish. It was God of very God, God the Son, who came into the world to redeem all those who trust in Him. And we understand that because that was God's revelation to man. We don't understand that because there was a creed written or a catechism was written. No, the creeds and the catechisms came out of what was written here in all of Scripture. They just simplify and systematize the doctrine that was taught in the gospel. Mark, Mark's calling us to believe this. And, and listen, pastorally, I just say this. The doctrine that is taught in Mark is essential for salvation. A denial of the doctrine that is taught in Mark 1.1 would be to reject God's own revelation of who Jesus is. So we, we must pay close attention. As I said, this is a powerful book. It's a packed book. It's, a, it's an action-filled book. But it's also a doctrinal book. A lot of times I, I've, I've heard and I've read things about Mark and its, its emphasis is on, rightfully so, on the, the active work of Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, the, or the Son of Man. He's going into the world. He's, he's applying the gospel truths of the kingdom in the world in a, in a very powerful way. And that's important. But Jesus himself said, that's not why I came in particular. Jesus says, I come to preach. He is the eminent preacher. He is the capital T-H-E, preacher of the Bible. 
He comes to give doctrine. And doctrine is nothing more than simply this, object of truth that was written for our understanding of what God has revealed about himself. It's object of truth about the kingdom of God and the power of God that comes from the mouth of God. Doctrine is essential for us. We need right doctrine. You know, we're, we're about to celebrate the Reformation here on the 30th here. And that's a glorious time. We talk about how the light came out of darkness. The irony today is, is to me is this. We live in a time and a period and a place where there are probably more Bibles published, more Christian books published, more Christian bookstores than anywhere else in the world. And, and we have more than we can ever digest. Yet we, we live in a dark age today. And we're covered up with scriptures. Problem is, people aren't opening them and developing their understanding of what God is like from scriptures. We've replaced doctrine with self-help and psychotherapy in the pulpit. And, and pastors are called upon to teach doctrine, doctrinal truths that glorify God, and they do edify us. Jesus is the subject of everything for us. Self-help is not even defined in Scripture as anything other than sin. Self-esteem, which would be quite the opposite of what Christ exerted Himself. He could have exerted His own esteem, yet He humbled Himself and became a servant so that He would die for our sins. So we need to learn the doctrine that is revealed, I think, in the Gospel of Mark. Mark begins by preaching about the doctrine of Christ. That's where he starts. The Gospel of Mark begins by teaching us about the doctrine of the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. Everybody here knows what that is, right? If you don't, I want to read to you what it is. This is the doctrine that speaks about Jesus being fully divine and yet fully man. 100% God, 100% man. You can't do the math on that. It doesn't make any human sense. But that's what makes him God and not us, right? It's what Scripture declares. Scripture will declare it many times that Jesus did something that only God can do. Jesus could forgive sins. Jesus could receive worship. Only God can do those two things. And at the same time, it talks about Jesus weeping, Jesus having human compassion, human emotion. And yes, he did. It was true. He bled. He died. As a human, he is on that cross interceding for us. The hypostatic union is the term Theologians use to define the doctrine of who Jesus is. The doctrine of Jesus' two natures. Jesus Christ had or has, we would say, two natures, divine and human. In theology, this is called the doctrine of the hypostatic union from the Greek word hypostasis, which came to mean, basically, he was fully man and yet fully God. Early church figures such as Athanasius used the term hypostatic union to describe the teaching that these two distinct natures, divine and human, coexisted essentially and in reality in the single person of Jesus Christ. The doctrine defends that Jesus is simultaneously truly God and truly man. And this is astounding stuff. Because it's this Jesus, it's this Jesus who enters into this creation to die for us. Just imagine, on the cross, the fully God, fully man, Jesus, is upholding everything in the universe by the word of His power. He is holding together the very men who are 
piercing him. He is holding together the very heretics that are surrounding him. And he is planning to bring you into existence and knows you by name. He chose you. All the while, he's on the cross suffering for you. And only God could do that, by the way. You understand that. It would take more than a mere man. He had to be greater than man. He was receiving the full penalty for all who would believe upon him. He received the entire penalty for every sinner who would believe upon who he is and what he has accomplished. That would require deity, a power that is beyond a human, to absorb the penalty for millions. If he was a mere man upon the cross... The best he could do if he was perfect from birth, without original sin like we all have, the best he could do would atone for one individual person. He could substitute his life for another. He he could do that because he was a perfect man. But that's not what Jesus does on the cross, or I hope that's not what you believe he did, because if you believe that, you're lost. You must believe that he was fully divine also. He could absorb the penalty for millions Because he was completely unstained because he was divine. He was holy. He was righteous. That's why he rose from the grave on the third day. Death could not hold him. There was no way. He was without sin. And he absorbed what no man could ever take. Every single thought and action deed that you have done to offend God was placed upon him on the cross. And that hypostatic union became your place of hope because There, the man, Jesus Christ, lived the perfect, righteous life you could never live, and he was receiving the just penalty for our sins in the flesh. He was dying our death, receiving our judgment from the holy and righteous judge so that God would be just and gracious. He could forgive our sins because our sins had been paid in full by Jesus. Mark begins with that doctrine that Jesus, as fully God and fully man, entered into the world to die for his creation. That's an amazing doctrinal truth, and it just expands as you go through this this gospel. But Mark also ends with the doctrine of Christ's penal substitutionary atonement and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Look with me at Mark 15. Mark 15, we see the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement spoken of here. You can just jump down. It's actually 21 through 39, but let's just jump down to verse 33. We see that Jesus is going to receive the penalty as our substitute. He would atone for our sins personally. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out or cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God, or the the Son of a God. Even this pagan saw something divine happening that he couldn't quite define. And what we understand this to mean is this. The 
Jesus was receiving, he was receiving the penalty for our sins. He was our personal substitute. When you think about the substitutionary atonement, I don't want you to think about Jesus dying for genetic or genetic, generic mankind. Like, you know, Jesus was on the cross and he died for sins. Now, what you need to be understanding is he is your personal substitute. Jesus, the Holy One, the Righteous One, the One who deserved to be praised and adored on this earth, He is on the cross being treated like the scum that we are. He's being treated by the Father the way I deserve to be treated for the thoughts that I had last night. For my individual, particular sins that I have offended God with from birth to now. He is receiving that penalty He is feeling the punishment for your adulterous eyes, your lying tongue, your greedy heart. It's personal. Penal substitutionary atonement means this. On the cross, Jesus took our place. He carried our identity, as it were, bore the curse due to us, and by His sacrificial blood shedding, made peace for us. Pardon for all the past and permanent personal acceptance for the future. That's according to J.I. Packer. On the cross, he's taking our place. He is receiving everything that we deserved so that we can, by God's grace, receive everything that Christ earned. There's a double imputation going on at the cross. There, he becomes sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, he takes our penalty. He gives us his perfection, his imputed righteousness. It's laid to our account so that God now sees us as he sees his son in perfection, and he loves us, and he cares for us. Mark 16 goes on to say that not only does the the doctrine of substitution hold itself out in this gospel, but also the doctrine of the resurrection. Verse 1, it says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, When the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where you had laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Just as he told you. And it says this, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. But What I want you to see here is the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, the hypostatic union, and the doctrine of the penal substitution, and the doctrine of the bodily resurrection. Every one of those doctrines demands something of the people who read this gospel. They demand a response, an immediate response to who he is. And if you'll notice how they responded to this revelation, they trembled with astonishment. It actually means they had ecstatic amazement. They were astonished. And we should be astonished by the doctrine that is revealed to us in Scripture. 
I fear for those who don't emphasize doctrine and Scripture when they preach the Word of God. Because if they're, if they're doing anything other than declaring the Word of God to the people of God for the glory of God, they have fallen into the trap of the love of the world. And the world may speak well of them, as it does many of these TV preachers, many of these people who are publicly acknowledged, because they avoid or they sidestep doctrine that could be controversial or hard to explain, that would actually exalt Christ above their own fame. Doctrine matters. Doctrine matters to our church. It matters to our witness. It matters ultimately, though, because the object of who we put our faith in matters. If we don't have doctrine, we don't know who we trust in. Wrong doctrine, according to what it says in 2 Corinthians, you can turn there, wrong doctrine will lead you to a wrong Jesus. It'll lead you to a wrong spirit. It'll lead you to another gospel, a false one. 2 Corinthians 11 warns about this. It, it's important to understand doctrine. It's important to understand who Jesus is according to Scripture. Because if you don't, again, it will lead you in the wrong direction to a damnable direction That's what Scripture will declare here. 11.4 says, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. The Apostle Paul is warning and rebuking the church at Corinth because they were willing to do this. They were willing to listen to a gospel that was more clever, a gospel that was more acceptable, a gospel that was not as offensive to the world around them. And that's the temptation today. But if you, if you distort, or let me just say this, you don't have to even directly attack the doctrine of Jesus. You can just simply avoid it. And it'll lead to the same consequences. People will insert, where you leave out Jesus, whatever they think is required to save you. If you don't talk about who Jesus is, they'll think they can believe whatever they want to about Him and be saved. And that is dangerous. Look with me in Galatians 1 to see that. Galatians 1. We have to be clear about who the object of our faith is in the presentation of the gospel. Paul says this in Galatians 1, 6. 1, 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. The word is anathema. The word is damned. Let him be damned. If somebody messes with this gospel, somebody tweaks this gospel, somebody leaves out who Jesus is from this gospel, he is separated from God for all eternity. Doctrine matters, according to the Apostle Paul. If you don't get the gospel right, if you don't get the object and the focus of the gospel right, you have no gospel. You are severed from the gospel. As he would go on to say about these Judaizers, In Galatia, he says, you think circumcision is good? You should cut it all off if you think that'll help. But it won't help. The only thing that'll help is having your heart circumcised by looking to the one who died and was crucified in your place, not to your rules, not to your regulations. Don't get doctrine wrong here when it comes to Jesus. I think that's one of the big emphasis in the Gospel of Mark and all the Gospels. We're, We're finding out who Jesus is. It's the good news that comes from God. 
Mark tells us that the content of the gospel or the good news matters. It, it matters because it must be explained, or it matters because God has revealed it so that we could explain it to others so that he would be glorified through the explanation of it. It testifies to his greatness, his mercy, his grace, and his justice. And so Mark begins that way. He begins by testifying that Jesus, the Messiah, is fully divine and fully human. He is the Son of God. He's the Son of God who created all things, holds all things together, according to Colossians 1, 15-22. It's this same Jesus who created this world that came into it personally to seek and save that which was lost in the fall. Jesus testified through the gospel of Mark itself and reported that he was divine by his actions and by his own teaching. We're going to look at some of those quickly. But turn with me to Mark chapter 1 again. And I want to make this point clear. Knowing who Jesus is is not an option for Christians. There's, there's a difference between being confused about the triune nature of God and trying to figure that out and trying to work through that. There's a difference between being confused about things like that and denying it as it is revealed in Scripture. A denial of who Jesus is is a rejection of God's revelation, a rejection of God's word. You're basically saying to God, you're a liar or you're confusing. God is neither. He is clear. And he's revealed to us that Jesus is both divine and both human. He is our only mediator. In Mark, there are at least seven doctrinal reports that testify who Jesus is. And one of them is found here in Mark 1.32. I'm going to give you these, these list of things that only Jesus could do, okay? Only Jesus could do these things. And, and what I want you to notice about this, when some people today, some people from the Word of Faith movement and people like that, they say, well, we can do these things because Jesus did these things. Well, you know, there's a difference. One, they can't do those things. But two, the difference is Jesus had, didn't have to do it in, in the name of anyone. He didn't do it in anyone else's authority. He did this by his own authority. He alone could do this. Here in Mark 1, 32 through 35, it teaches us the Son of God can command demons. He can control and demand their attention. In verse 32, it says, That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. He commands them. He controls them. Because Jesus came into the world to do that. He came in to conquer and control our enemies for us. Now, verse 40. Verses 40 through 42. Secondly, teach us that the Son of God could also not just command demons. He can also cleanse the defiled. He can cleanse the defiled. Look what it says in 40 through 42. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Again, Jesus does this miracle to testify to who he is and what he was going to do. He came to show us what the God of heaven will do for those who are defiled by sin. He can cleanse them with a touch. He can cleanse them by his word. And that's what he does. Isn't this a touching account here? I'll preach on this in a few weeks, months, whenever. And, and this one is one that just captures my heart. 
Because Jesus touches him before he heals him. It's a no-no for a Jew. Yet Jesus comes out completely undefiled because he is holy. And sin cannot touch him. Yet he can touch sinners. Isn't that good? That is good news. God touches sinners. Mark 2, 3 through 12 teaches us that the Son of God can cure. He can cure the crippled and he can forgive the sinner. He can cure the spiritually crippled and he can cure the spiritually dead by forgiving our sins. Look what it says in 2, 3. And they were gathered together so that there were, was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when, they saw, or when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sons are forgiven. That's amazing. Only God can forgive sin. And people around Jesus knew that. Look what it says. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But, <laughs> oh, I think Jesus had a smile on his face when he said this. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. They said, only God can do this. Only God can forgive sins, and they were right. Only God can heal the crippled, and they were right. And Jesus does both. And they were amazed by this. And we should be amazed by that as well. Because he's, he's not a far off, distant God. As John told us in John chapter 1, He tabernacled with us. He came near us. He became like us to be our sympathetic high priest and do what we could never do for us. Mark five thirty five teaches us that the Son of God can do something only, only God can do. He calls forth the dead. He gives life to the spiritually dead as well as the physically dead. And only God can do that. 535, it says, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw, and, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talithakumai, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Again, he does what only God can do. He calls forth life from the dead. 
But you know what's tender about this? You see the active hand of the deity, the God, man. But you also see the compassion of the man, Christ, Jesus. Mom and dad, stay with me. I want you to see this. Put everybody else away. I love you and I love your daughter. Talitha, come on. Sixthly, Mark 10, 45. It teaches us that the Son of God came to rescue sinners. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus exchanged his perfect life for ours. And only the God-man could do that. He accomplished our complete redemption by fulfilling the righteous requirements of God's law humanly and then dying our death to pay our penalty. And what I love is my seventh point. And go to, go to Mark 13. My seventh point is this. The Son of God who came to rescue sinners, this same Jesus, who is both fully God and fully man, is coming again in all authority. He's coming again for those he died for. He's coming again to display his glory. Mark 13 speaks of this, verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now look with me in Revelation 19. What I want us to see as a church this morning is this. This Jesus that Mark testified to in Mark 1, this same Jesus who became flesh to dwell among us and to live our life for us, and this same Jesus who died for us and rose and ascended, This same Jesus is coming again. And and this same Jesus, according to Scripture, according to what God has revealed, this Jesus, when He comes again, He will not be robed in humility. He will be robed in authority and power and might. And He will judge the wicked. And He'll receive His own. Revelation 19.1 After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Period. Stop there for just a moment. Think with me here. Doctrine is important. Who Jesus is is important. What the Bible declares about who Jesus is is essential to your salvation. If you deny the deity of Christ, you are not a Christian. Because God has revealed to us who Jesus is. In chapter 19, we actually see it. Look what 19, 1 and 2 says. After it says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. It almost sounds exactly like what we saw happening in Mark 13. But it says, For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Now, quickly look over to verse 11 to see who this judge is. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on His head are many diadems, 
And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Logos of God, the Word of God. John 1, 1. John 1, 14. The Word became flesh. The Word is coming back in authority to judge the wicked and to receive his own. We need to know who Jesus is. And Mark wants to teach us about this. Mark wants us to be able to define this. And Mark wants us to immediately respond to this Jesus. So let me just end with this. Two things. Have you responded to Jesus this morning? What I mean by that is this. If you have never understood who He is until now, you're being called upon to respond by repenting of your sin. Repenting of your offenses that you have exercised against God as His enemy. Defying His authority. Living in your own self-righteousness. Trusting in your own works. You need to repent turn away from those. And you need to turn and cling to this revelation. God Himself has entered into this creation to save you. To redeem you. To call you to repent. To call you to trust in Him. That is God's revelation to us. You need to respond to that by repenting of your sins and clinging to Christ trusting in what God has sent to save you. And secondly, if you're a Christian, ask yourself, are you responding to this revelation? When you present the gospel to people, do you just throw Jesus out there and not explain who He is? Because when you do that, one, you're not glorifying Him. You're not worshiping Him. If you don't define Jesus, there is no good news in your presentation. You need to define who this Savior is that we're calling people to trust Him. It's essential for us. We are His ambassadors. We must represent Him the way Scripture does. We can't leave it out. We can't distort it. It's a hard message. God becomes man. That doesn't seem possible. Humanly, it's not. It's a divine message revealed by God in His Word. You must trust what God has said. So, as Christians, do we respond to this revelation that way? It should compel us, by the way, to share this news with new zeal. We can tell people the bad news. You're not a good person. You're corrupt from birth, and by choice, you're a sinner. You're totally consumed with your sin. It's infected every part and thought of of your life. But there's good news. Those sins can be forgiven. God has done something to redeem people like me and you. He entered in to live the life we could never live and die the death we deserve so that we could be granted the grace we could never earn. And to Him be the glory in that. And pray that we'll learn to do that as we study who Jesus is through Mark, Mark's gospel. Let's pray.